Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we're talking about a particularly interesting kind of question and about how to use the semicolon, a punctuation mark that seems to cause a lot of people anxiety, and we're going to fix that. You will never wonder when to use it again. Let's get started. This first piece is by Aaron McKean. Some days, it seems that the most common kind of understanding is misunderstanding. Every conversation, not to mention each email, IM, or text message, is rife with opportunities for crossed circuits and hurt feelings. There's no end of advice about how to avoid miscommunication. Keep things simple. Take your time. Be aware of cultural differences. But missing from all these communication helper lists is a little linguistic tick that most people use every day, the tag question. You know what tag questions are, don't you? Tag questions are those little questioning upticks, usually found at the end of a sentence that grease the conversational wheels, like that, don't you? Linguist sees these questions as coming in two different flavors, the kind that ask for information or confirmation, called modal tags, as in, you've got the tickets, right? And the kind that try to connect with the other person's feelings, softening a statement or opening the door for more conversation, called affective tags, as in, that was certainly unexpected, wasn't it? Since they help keep information flowing, you'd think tag questions would be appreciated for their importance to the language, or at least held up as a useful communication tool. But in fact, they're almost always ignored and occasionally even mocked. This may be in part because tag questions have been identified as a female speech pattern. The linguist Robin Lakoff, in her landmark 1975 book, Language and Woman's Place, listed tag questions alongside qualifiers, for example, kind of, weak expletives, such as, oh, fudge, and empty adjectives, such as fabulous and lovely, as tools used by women to soften or weaken their statements. Based on her own impressions, Lakoff associated tag questions with, quote, a desire for confirmation or approval, which signals a lack of self-confidence in the speaker, unquote. But as it turns out, that's only one view of the social aspect of tag questions. Studies done more recently have found that men use tag questions at least as often as women, and one study found men using tag questions twice as often— and that men are more likely to use the supposedly less confident ask-for-more-information-or-confirmation kind of tag questions. Further, this softening kind of tag question, the kind used to facilitate conversation, was identified less with gender than with power. It turns out that the people who are in charge of making sure conversations go well, powerful speakers such as talk show hosts, doctors, and teachers— are the ones who tend to use affective tags. When you look at what people actually use as tag questions, it turns out to be a fascinating and delightful corner of the language. The modal tag questions, the practical ones, tend to be straightforward. We're going to be late, aren't we? I should close this, shouldn't I? He knows where we're going, doesn't he? The affective tags, on the other hand, have a huge range of variation across regions and cultures. Many of us use a simple right or okay, or a slightly less simple, you're with me so far? In the South, you're likely to hear, you hear? 
especially in the stereotypical, y'all come back now, you hear? There's the jokey get it, the British savvy, the good fella-ish capiche, and the Spanglish comprendo. Some are redolent of old hipsterisms, such as catch my drift, and some are associated with urban culture, such as know what I'm saying or I. Different variations of English and other languages use tag questions, too. Canadians have a, Brits have in it, and in Singaporean English, there's the borrowed la. For a little question calling us to acknowledge shared understanding, some of these can draw surprisingly negative attention. For example, I know, right? That is, yes, I've noticed that, too. It not only has a Facebook group dedicated to stamping it out, but a YouTube video as well. Those opposed to, I know, right, seem to think it's illogical. If you know something, why are you asking for confirmation? But they're overthinking it. Instead of being two separate statements, I'm aware, plus do you agree, I know, right, is really one quick emphatic statement of recognition and agreement, which is probably why it's also sometimes written as all one word. I know, right? I-N-O-R-I-T-E. And am I right gets the same treatment. Am I right? A-M-I-R-I-T-E. Especially in jokey contexts where the feeling is more of a nightclub comic rim shot than a conversational door opener. There's a reason tag questions are so widespread and so nearly unconscious for many speakers. They're the conversational equivalent of measure twice, cut once. A simple way to check in and confirm what we've just said is indeed what our listeners heard. When we're all in agreement, we can let okay and you know pass us over. But when we're not, they give us an opportunity, however rarely taken, to pipe up and admit that no, I don't know what you're saying after all. Given that tag questions are both helpful and effortless, it may be time to amp up our use and show them a little respect, don't you think? That segment was by Aaron McKean, the founder of WordNick.com, the internet's friendliest and biggest dictionary. You can follow her on Twitter at E. McCain, E-M-C-K-E-A-N. I get questions about semicolons a lot, so it's time to clear up some confusion. Semicolons separate things. Most commonly, they separate two main clauses that are closely related to each other, but that could stand on their own as sentences if you wanted them to. Here's an example. Squiggly loves chocolate, semicolon. He even put it on his tacos once. The two parts of that long sentence that are separated by a semicolon could be sentences on their own if you put a period between them. Squiggly loves chocolate, period. He even put it on his tacos once. One reason you might choose to use a semicolon instead of a period is if you want to add variety to your sentence structure. For example, if you thought you had too many short, choppy sentences in a row. But when you use a semicolon, the main clauses should be closely related to each other. You wouldn't write, it was below zero, semicolon, squiggly loves chocolate, because those two main clauses have nothing to do with each other. In fact, the other reason to use a semicolon instead of a period is if you want to draw attention to the relationship between the two clauses. Next, people often ask what the difference is between a semicolon and a colon, and there are a couple of differences. First, the purpose of a colon is to introduce or define something. For example, you could write, Squiggly checked the temperature, colon, it was minus 20 degrees outside. 
I'll admit that these differences can be subtle, but I'd use a colon in that sentence instead of a semicolon because the second clause, the temperature, strongly relates back to the first clause, squiggly checking the temperature. The second difference between a colon and a semicolon is that when you're joining things, you use a semicolon to join things of equal weight, whereas you can use a colon to join things of equal or unequal weight. For example, you can use either a semicolon or colon to join two main clauses, but you can only use a colon to join a main clause with a noun. Here's an example. Squiggly has a favorite flavor, colon, chocolate. You couldn't use a semicolon in that sentence because the two parts are unequal. One way I remember this is to think of the different elements as railroad cars, and in my imagination, it's the train in the Schoolhouse Rock cartoon, Conjunction Junction. And I use a semicolon only if I'm joining two equal boxcars. If I'm joining two unequal elements, like a boxcar and a caboose, a clause and a noun, then I know that I can't use a semicolon, and I consider whether colon makes sense. So equal sentence boxcars get a semicolon, and unequal sentence boxcars and cabooses often get a colon or a dash. Also, one important thing to remember is that you almost never use semicolons with coordinating conjunctions, such as and, or, and but, when you're joining two main clauses. Instead, if you're joining two main clauses with a coordinating conjunction, you use a comma. For example, squiggly loves chocolate, comma, and he even put it on his tacos once. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but there is one situation where you use semicolons with coordinating conjunctions, and that's when you're writing a list of items, and commas just don't do the job of separating them all. Here's an example. This week's winners are Dorothy from Seattle, Washington, semicolon, Matt from Phoenix, Arizona, semicolon, and Brian from Miami, Florida. Because each item in the list requires a comma to separate the city from the state, you have to use a semicolon to separate the items themselves. It's Dorothy from Seattle, comma, Washington, semicolon, Matt from Phoenix, comma, Arizona, semicolon, and so on. Finally, you use a semicolon when you use a conjunctive adverb to join two main clauses. Conjunctive adverbs are words such as however, therefore, and indeed, and they usually show cause and effect, sequence, contrast, comparison, or other relationships. For example, aardvark is on vacation, semicolon. Therefore, squiggly has to carry the weight in this episode. People sometimes seem frustrated because they have to remember to use commas with coordinating conjunctions and semicolons with conjunctive adverbs, but if you can't keep the difference straight in your head, it can help to remember that commas are smaller than semicolons and go with coordinating conjunctions, which are almost always short two- or three-letter words, small punctuation mark, small words. Semicolons are bigger, and they go with conjunctive adverbs, which are almost always longer than three letters, bigger punctuation, bigger words. I'll put a list of the two kinds of connectors at the bottom of this transcript at quickanddirtytips.com. Finally, I have a familect story from Eric. Hi, Grammar Girl. It's Eric in West Lynn, Oregon. We have a lot of familects, but this is probably the most story-worthy. About 10 years ago, my cousin was getting married on a residential island in a lake. Most of the guests reached the reception on what I think are generically called party boats. 
During several floats over the weekend, we observed another vehicle meant to have the words party boat displayed on the side, but the Y had lost its tail. Since then, each of our family gatherings is a part two. Thanks for the podcast and uh, all your great thoughts. Thanks for the story, Eric. I hope everyone who's celebrating this week has a wonderful Thanksgiving part two. If you want to call with the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. And I have to add, lately I've been getting a lot of calls I can't use because of bad audio, so please be sure you're calling from a quiet place and you're speaking directly into your phone. No calling from your moving car or using your speakerphone from 10 feet away, please. It just makes me sad when it's a great story, but I can barely hear you, so we can't play it in the podcast. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager is Michelle Margulis, and our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening. 